So we're again running into those problems with the fact that in 1999-ish in the Star Trek universe, uh, the franchise is not sure whether it was the eugenics war or whether it was just 1999 as we know it. And that that I, I sometimes wish that Star Trek had had a more uh, settled continuity, but on the other hand, I'm really happy that it doesn't because I know this probably pisses a lot of people off. I think this pisses off fewer people than you think it does. Honestly, I, I don't. I don't think that most people actually care all that much about continuity with things that were supposed to happen in the future of Star Trek, the original series that did in fact not happen. Uh, we have two problems with eleven fifty nine. Of course, the first is the eugenics wars, which were also a problem in Future's End, which also comes up in Relativity. So this is it's interesting how this all kind of just circles back and back. Um, but the other problem, of course, is that the picture at the end of the episode is like supposed to be in like 2050, and that would have been like after World War Three, when like 500 million people were dead and like nuclear holocaust had happened. So, yeah, I mean, you can you can hand wave a lot of this stuff away. I know that there was a eugenic, eugenics war novel or series of novels that were supposedly very good that I have not read. Um, because there are like 11 billion Star Trek novels and no one can read them all. Um, I'd have to quit my job to do it. But I think that – so the novel series basically like posited that the eugenics wars or sort of retcon the eugenics wars not as an actual war but as a series of like black ops style things going on, which honestly I'm fine with. I, I don't care that much. I mean the eugenics wars did not happen and the whole concept of them was kind of weird anyway because I mean – I, I remember talking about this way back in like 1997 when we first did the podcast and uh, it was like, did, were eugenics a thing in the 60s? Was this something people were worried about? Because I always thought of that more as like a 20s and 30s thing leading yeah. up to World War II. But anyway, regardless, um, we're doing that thing again where we talk about everything except the episode <laughs> because... I mean, I liked the episode. I just didn't... I mean, I found both of these episodes to be better episodes than they had the right to be in a way, but uh, 1159 isn't bad. It's a very quaint episode because – and this is something that I'm getting to in general with this era of Star Trek and with – we're also watching The X-Files, which I think uh, we're in 1998 in The X-Files and 99 in Voyager – so we're at roughly the same time, and this is the time when I was, you know, 16, 17, 18 years old. And so, like, millennium anxieties are something that I remember very well, and it's very— Yeah, I mean, I, I have vivid memories of being in the family room in my childhood home, <laughs> home from college over Christmas break in 1999 on New Year's Eve. yeah sitting there like and i actually like picked up the phone to figure out if there was like a dial tone even though they told everyone not to do that because apparently the system is designed or at least it was when people had landlines so that like you not everybody can pick up their phone at the same time or the system will crash oh my god so then y2k did happen just because everybody pulled up their phones um no it worked it was fine there was a dial tone the lights didn't go off nothing really happened but yeah, so I found it hilarious, and like the episode makes fun of the well, the millennium really begins in two thousand one. People, and I loved that because we were all making fun of those people at the time, and it's 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 weird to have an episode about millennium anxiety. But when we're definitely going to get those in the X Files, I would assume. Uh, 
Not really. Really? And no. just, I, I thought, especially since, you know, Millennium was a show that he created that, you know, might be an obsession of his. But anyway, um, I don't know how much we needed a an episode about the ancestry of Janeway. But on the other hand, what I said last week, this is a Hangout episode. This is the crew dealing with literally nothing. So they're hanging out and talking about, you know, family history. And I think that's cute. They're really working on the this is a conception of voyager that's really leaning into the voyager crew as family thing um whether we entirely buy it whether it's selling it a little harder than uh the show may have earned is another discussion but and maybe brandon braga taking the show from the beginning would have really focused on this crew as a unit these people as a kind of surrogate family that was always a sub theme of the series but it seems it's a focus now and i kind of like that it's one of the reasons we like tng for example it's one of the reasons that we got into ds9 and so them doing that in voyager seems nice too i mean this was this was a nice episode it's nice to see an episode in which people we like aren't being threatened for once yeah certainly and i mean i think that um part of what i find interesting about 1159 is that it's it's both ambitious and completely unambitious at the same time this this would not have been out of place as an episode of a lot of television series in in this era and and of course i feel like one of the things that I always struggle with with Voyager, and I, I'm thinking about this a lot because we are, you know, we're getting to the end of the series, believe it or not. I mean, you know, it's we're, we're, we've still got two seasons to go, um, but we're also getting to the end of the fifth season next week. So it's a natural point for a couple of reasons to, to start thinking about Star Trek Voyager as a television series. And I do think that that having a singular showrunner throughout the entire six or seven seasons of the show would have probably benefited it. I, I, I think that the best seasons of TNG were when Michael Pillow was running it. He ran it from the third to the sixth season, so three, four, you know, four seasons. Um, Iris Stephen Bear show ran DS9 for all of it except for the first two seasons, and Michael Pillow show ran that. But Voyager really had a bunch of showrunners. It had four showrunners, and it just never really. It always feels like a slightly different version of the show that was a couple of seasons ago. And what I find fascinating about 1159 is that this is a version of Star Trek Voyager that knows it's a television series. Like, there's there's something very... There's something very bland about this episode in a way that I don't think Michael Piller or even Jerry Taylor would have ever allowed to happen. I I cannot, I fundamentally cannot see this episode ever happening on TNG. Like TNG was forward looking. TNG was not interested in the past. They, They would go to the past, but it was sort of a Doctor Who cosplay style situation. And this is, you know, a completely non science fiction episode. Which is very, very firmly rooted in the present of 1998-1999 in a way that I find very odd. And I don't think it's a problem. Like, I think it's a good episode and it's interesting to watch it. But but there's also just a very strange, like, why am I watching this? Yeah, I mean, you could take out the uh, Shannon O'Donnell segments and 
have the pilot to another series in a way. Uh, it would be just any generic 1999 era WB drama. Uh, and I don't, I, I, I feel like there is part of this episode that is lost by it being 20 years later and generic television looking very different. You know, if, if they wanted to, um, you know, if Discovery had an episode in which Mike, we had Michael Burnham's ancestor and it would look like a 2018-era comedy-drama thing, it would not look like this. It would be very different. And it seems like the kind of thing they did where they were bored because Kate Mulgrew wanted to do a different kind of character because she's tired of playing the same character every week. It almost reminded me of the Murder, She Wrote episodes <laughs> where they have, like, her cousin or something playing like that or, you know... Uh, this is the story of a novel that I wrote because, again, Angela Lansbury had been doing this for 45 seasons and she was Angela goddamn Lansbury and wanted to actually act for a bit. Uh, it's it's always fascinating to me, no matter how long we've been oh, doing I know. podcast on television, that you think that actors have any input whatsoever into what the writers <laughs> write. They're going to write whatever the fuck they want oh, to write. I know, I know, but I, I have a good imagination. Um I mean, I, I'm with you, but I think that, um, you know, one of the things that kind of irks me about this episode is, so I, you know, I read the Memory Alpha page on this episode, as I usually do, and, like, they were very falling all over themselves to be like, this is the first episode of Star Trek that had no science fiction elements, and you're like, um, Family from TNG, which is, like, one of the best episodes of TNG ever, like, uh, yeah, no. uh, and, to a and- lesser degree, uh, Far Beyond the Stars, uh, although he, his experience has some sci-fi reasons to it, it's a very literal look at what 60s sci-fi writing was like. Like, like that, that I, I would say this is not the first one with that, but... No, no, I mean, not at all. And, and The Millennium Gate is a sci-fi element, number one, if you want to be pedantic about it, so shut up. <laughs> it, it is, and I, I mean, I think that... that, that... I don't know because I like I like the the flashbacks in this episode quite a bit. I think they're well done. I I also like the sort of way that Kate Mulgrew and the other actors in the past really do construct characters very quickly. Yeah, I mean, some of it is a little bit like, all right, whatever. Um, would a washed out astronaut really be homeless? I don't know. But then again, this is America, so a lot of people are homeless that should not be homeless, and and that's not surprising. But at the same time, I think that I don't really know like what this episode tells us about Janeway herself. I mean, she's narrating this story. Neelix starts it out by being obsessed with like the great wall of China and all this kind of stuff and the millennium gate. And then she's flashing back and she's telling the story of her ancestor who got her into Starfleet Academy or inspired her to go to Starfleet Academy. And then she realizes that actually none of this is true. Yeah. Um, Which, which, okay. I guess it's like, Oh, well, you know, you can make your own destiny and whatever. But I guess I'm just left with a feeling of like, so what? Like, I, I yeah, I mean, this is a, this is a another this is a cousin to Living Witness in a lot of ways. Uh, they are both predicated on the theme that okay, history happened, something happened, and then hundreds of years later, or even decades, even a few years later, things things start to get confused, and then the actual what happens fades in the presence of the stories that we tell about it, what we are able to piece together what from whatever rep, uh, 
what we are able to piece together from whatever resources are still remaining. Um, even when you have primary sources such as a diary, uh, that's still not a 100% accurate interpretation of events because even if it was written five minutes after, it's still my interpretation, my things that I thought were important, my perspective. And uh, all of these leads to... It's very difficult, if not impossible, to determine what actually happened in the past, uh, which is an interesting lead-up to the next episode, I will say, where we're – how do we find out what happens in the past? Well, we can actually travel to it, and we can actually see it for ourselves, but um, I don't know why Voyager quite has this theme of the past is what we interpret it to be, and if we decide that we interpret it to be – and this episode this episode firmly lands on the side of we can interpret it to be something positive and a source of strength. It doesn't really matter what Shannon O'Donnell really did. What matters is that we ha- Shannon O'Donnell has become an archetypal figure of uh, intelligence and courage and all of those things from which uh, the young Janeway was able to draw on and eventually become her own you know it it doesn't matter what you really were you're a role model from history i don't know if that's a good theme or not i don't know if that's a theme which honors shannon o'donnell or uses her to be whatever we want her to be you know does I, i i almost feel like that denies the actual life of this woman well, yes and no. I mean, I think that, that what's interesting about the episode, of course, is that we are not seeing a holographic recreation of her life or anything like that. I mean, we we are supposed to be seeing the, the literal actual events of her life as they happened, and they are very different from what Janeway told us, of course. I mean, you know, she said she was one of the first women astronauts. Well, that's not true. Um, you know, she, she said that she was instrumental in building the Millennium Gate. Well, that's not true. You know, there are a lot of things that are not true, but, but I think that what is, I don't know, I guess if you take the lesson, I, I take it as slightly different in that we all have ancestors, we all come from somewhere, and we don't really ever know who yeah. they are, especially if they are so removed from us, as Shannon O'Donnell is removed from Captain Jamie yeah. because she was alive 400 years ago. So yeah, don't they say like she's like ten generations removed or something like that? Yeah, yeah, fifteen generations. Something. I think seven says. So it doesn't it doesn't necessarily matter what she did. It's it, it's important to Janeway that uh, uh, she convinced you know she she inspired her to join Starfleet Academy. But I don't think that I don't think that Janeway would have not joined Starfleet Academy if she no. knew the real truth about Shannon O'Donnell. It just. Because the thing is that you really have to look at is like, okay, well, if they knew the real truth about Shannon O'Donnell, then Janeway just wouldn't have known that she existed at all because they wouldn't have been telling stories about her. I mean, I don't hear family stories about my great, great, great grandfather who didn't do anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I mean, like, I just, I don't know who that guy was. Yeah, I heard about the Baron's daughter from Italy who ran off with a chauffeur and was disinherited, and that's why we came to America. I don't know anything about her brother, for example. Um... Yeah, and it's not as if I mean Janeway has mentioned many role models: Amelia, Amelia Earhart, uh, Leonardo da Vinci, other people that she'd known throughout life. Uh, she certainly got an inspiration from other family members, uh, her own parents, um, teachers that she's had. So 
yes, Shannon O'Donnell was a really big influence on her, but it's not as if she was the only influence. I, 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 I think that's pretty right. It's not as if Janeway was quite fated to be a Starfleet captain. You know, that part was up in the air, but she had enough people in her life that, yes, Janeway was going to do something very intellectual. Janeway was always going to do something probably very scientific-minded. She was always going to do something which had that level, needed that level of dedication and all of that, um, because that is who she is. She is going to find a find a job that's worthy of her in that way. Uh, this isn't, uh, yeah. Well, mentioning Amelia Earhart, I think, is interesting as well, because I think that's also part of the episode in that it is not incidental that Shannon O'Donnell is a woman and it is not incidental that that she lives, you know, she while well, she lived in a time uh, when women were still, you know, subject to discrimination and all those sorts of things. I mean, you yeah, know, I think that that is a that is one facet of Janeway's character that has been consistent from her first appearance in the show that that she is a feminist character. And yeah. but that that is an important facet to her character as well. And and. I mean, I, I don't really know what to make of the fact that she marries this guy. I think that, you know, moving to the text of the episode, I I don't necessarily get a whole lot of chemistry there. And I, I think that it's one of the weaker parts of the episode yeah. in, in that, you know, the episode really lives or dies based on the flashback scenes. And I yeah. guess they're fine, but there is an unreality to them, which... Part of it is that they're filming it on a back lot. Part of it is just like the Millennium Gate doesn't exist and they never really explain what the idea of it is. I mean, yes, it's supposed to be like a self-contained biosphere, but I I don't – we already had those. It's not like it was the first one ever built. I mean, um, and, and number one, there is the fact that this is going, they're going to have to level the entire town, right? Because this is large enough to be seen from space and there's towns of that. But anyway, um, I, but, but yeah, but, I mean, that's the other thing, too, is it's like, why do they have to bulldoze a town? Like, it's yeah, America. There's, there's no other there's place. There's a lot in, of empty yeah. space in America. <laughs> yeah. Um, and maybe that is part of the point of the episode in that there are a lot of, you know, by by the time of Voyager, the Millennium Gate is seen as a wonderful uh, thing, as a, as a big accomplishment of humanity, as a bastion of scientific and architectural progress and all of those things. And those may be the case, but it at all, I, I mean, on the other hand, it really does seem like uh, Mr. Janeway is the only person who doesn't like this. I mean, this is a, I wonder if the episode would have been stronger with a little more debate about whether this thing is good or not. Is this just a gigantic mall, as Mr. Janeway says, that just happens to have some... Because, I mean, the Mall of America probably has a bunch of architectural and uh, scientific things behind it, how you keep that place cool, how you keep that place from standing. I mean, those are all, all very interesting challenges, but it is a bastion of commercialism. Is that what this would have been with some apartments versus the super rich? I mean... It doesn't sound like it. I mean, they do really say that it has a serious scientific component in that it is a self-contained biosphere that will help them figure out how to live on Mars. So, no, I don't think that's the case. I don't think this is just the Mall of America with a really cool HVAC system. But, like, I mean, 
it's a little vague and and yeah. it's fine that's not the point of the episode i mean the millennium gate is something important that happened and shannon o'donnell janeway's ancestor was somewhat involved yeah. in it, which is the point of the episode uh and she inspired janeway to join starfleet academy is about all we need to know and i guess you know if you really look at it like Part of, I think, what this episode is trying to say is that it does not really matter what actually happened in someone's life yeah. in, if, if they inspire other people to do great things. And and that makes me, especially in light of the next episode, worry that the unintentional theme is that the future is allowed to plunder the past because the past is already dead and it didn't matter. All of these – I mean there is almost the sense in uh, in relativity that – the lives of the people in the present don't really matter because that already happened. The future can pull who they want as long to get their goals. The future can change history if it needs to within the rules of the temporal prime directive, of course. But yeah, I, I mean, Voyager has a very strange relationship with time travel that we will talk about with relativity. But of course not. I mean, again, this uh, th- this is one of those where the pairing is probably not intentional, but it does seem interesting that we are dealing with two episodes about the past in different ways. It's just that uh, the past in 1159 is two, three hundred years in the past. The past in relatively is our present. Yeah, no, for that, sure. As they say in relativity, I gave up trying to get the tenses straight years ago. <laughs> Uh, well, I, I think we're, we're we're probably pretty much almost done with eleven fifty nine. But but I do want to call out one thing about the episode which I like in particular, which that bookstore set is really really cool. Yeah, uh, that was apparently constructed for the episode. I don't know. I was about to ask, from, uh, was that yeah, an actual store? Wow. All right. Well, then we're going to move on to relativity. But before we do that, you know what's coming up, or maybe you don't, because this is your first time listening to Trek about. And if it is, and you like the show. Go to patreon.com slash truckaboutshow. Patreon is a website where you can support your favorite creators monetarily. Give us some money. Patreon.com slash truckaboutshow. All right, let's talk about relativity, which uh, is interesting, but (laughs) again, is kind of just an action-adventure romp. Well, as far as action-adventure time travel romps go, I thought this was a very good one. This is one that... um, I think I said this is an episode that was a lot more clever than I think it maybe had the right to be. It's, I mean, it's interesting the degree to which this episode is an exercise in continuity porn, right? Like we have, yeah, uh, we have futures end references. We have Kazon. We have the first ep. We have the first episode essentially. We have a lot of. I mean, th- th- this is something that again I was not expecting to have in Voyager. This is an episode that really does know its own past and does get a lot of its... uh, Power is a little too loaded of a term for this episode because I would not call this a powerful episode, but a lot of the panache of this episode comes from the recontextualization of earlier things. And, you know, it's a gimmick, but it's one that I think was effective in this one. Yeah, I mean, I like this episode a lot, and and so I actually went back and watched um, Future's End just to see it because I was like, that's not the same actor that played Captain Braxton, and it's it's not the same actor that played Captain Braxton, uh, so that was a little confusing. Um, and I think that the con- the conception of 29th century Starfleet in this episode, I, I mean, we'll talk about the actual the. 
I mean, we'll talk about the episode, of course, but I want to start out by talking about this concept of time ships and this concept of 29th century Starfleet. Because oh, it doesn't work. <laughs> no, it's 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 a bad idea, and I think that you know they go back to this well because they had an idea for an episode and it works fine as an episode. But the more they go and show the 29th century Federation, the less it works, and part of it is that. You know, this this was one of the stated reasons. Now, whether or not this is actually true or not, who knows? But but this is what they said that one of the one of the reasons why they never wanted to go further than the 24th century in Star Trek, and one of the reasons why Discovery is a prequel is because they just don't know how to make like the 25th century interesting or futuristic enough. Which I mean is kind of bullshit, but whatever. Uh, but then you really see that as a problem in this episode because. Well- it's 500 years in the future, which is more than we are from Star Trek Voyager to like now, because we're like 350 years. And it's different, but it's not that different. And I guess I just don't really. It introduces so many problems that is just kind of like, I think that treating it as a joke is fine. The Department of Temporal policing or whatever and tri- trials and tribulations from yeah. ds9 stuff like that that's fine but when you start taking this seriously as a concept and start introducing the idea that in the future the federation has like a division of starfleet that has time ships that are tasked with keeping the temporal prime directive from being broken and it's just like it's the kind uh, of right. thing where they try it feels a little too underbaked if they had come up with uh, uh, just like most of Voyager, if they had come up with a very detailed idea of, well, here's how the Federation works in the 29th century, and here's where we are, and here's what we've discovered about the stuff, and here's who's working, who's, here's who's in the Federation and such, then maybe it would have been a little more concrete. Maybe there would have been – again, even if all this is not going to go into this episode, it doesn't feel like they put it into place. Um, because, yeah, when you get to the idea of that long of a time span – and yet it's just the same with, like, the Star Trek logo. Star, it's the Starfleet logo a little different than it doesn't quite work. I mean, I'm thinking about stuff like Dune, for example, takes a timeline of thousands of years over the series, and it gets very weird. The definite of a humanity, especially even by the time of the first novel, is very stretched and changed and different. And even though we're dealing with some of the same problems, it recognizes that on that long of a time scale, things are going to get bizarre. Look at, uh, you know, ancient Greece as opposed to now. I mean, they would say our life now is very weird and disturbing, and timeship is not weird and disturbing. Even some, or something like Babylon 5, for example, which has this concept of mysticism much built into it that enough time passes in a species' life, it gets to be, it, it ascends and becomes this ancient race and all of those things. Like, these are long timelines built in. Star Trek does not have that sense of a long timeline, particularly because Star Trek is very concerned with the lives of individuals in the here and now. Um, yeah, it's not yeah. interested in human. You know, humanity is going to change in the Star Trek universe, but according to TNG, it's going to be nicer and have better technology. And uh, even though DS Nine and Voyager put wrinkles onto that, that's still the same basic premise. We're going to be better. Things are going to get better, but we're still going to be pretty okay. And for two hundred years, 
I can assume that uh, someone in 1800 versus now, I can get their li- I, their life makes a little more sense. My life would make a little more sense to them. We're still doing the same things. It's just with it looks very different. But yeah, it's not prepared to build in the implications of that long of a timeline. And it's also, I mean, aside from the fact that that everything you said, I think, is correct, and 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 that you know the actual. Um, um, reality of, of the 29th century doesn't really make a whole lot of sense or, or is underbaked. It, it also, and I'm not someone who is like a continuity hound or anything, but yeah. a lot, like when you introduce an idea like this, and and in general, and I think longtime listeners of Trek About will know that I always have a very hesitant opinion of time travel in Star Trek. I think that some of the episodes that deal with time travel are some of the best in the franchise. But I also think that it is a crutch sometimes for like, that yeah. that writers fall into, and I I I am very like I liked the time travel loop plot of discovery in that one yeah. episode with Harry Mudd magic to make the sanest man go mad I think it was, um but but I don't want to see discovery fall down a well of like going back to the 19th century and meeting Queen Victoria or stuff like that I I I'm fundamentally not interested in that kind of thing and. Yeah. Time travel, I think, works really well as a concept if you don't take it seriously at all or if you take it, like, way too seriously. But Star Trek just kind of treats it as a vehicle for telling stories. And I have to wonder, like, now that Voyager has introduced this idea of time ships and now that Voyager has introduced this idea that 29th century Starfleet is is tasked with protecting the timeline, whatever that means... All of the other ways in which, like, all the other episodes of Star Trek that we have seen where characters fuck up the timeline or the timeline gets fucked up by someone else and they have to go back and fix it. Like, why are they going back and fixing it? Why wasn't some time ship showing yeah. up and, like, fixing it and then erasing all their memories? And, I mean, and, and to be clear, like, this wasn't an idea that Voyager introduced. I mean, there there was that... Um, episode uh with the uh, um the guy from new jersey secaucus new jersey who uh stole a ship and he was like pretending to be a guy from the future and he came and was introducing them and he was a con man oh yeah uh, like i what think... series was that in tng okay i think that that was supposed to be a time ship so maybe it's all tng's fault and voyager just ran with it but it's 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 a problem and I can ignore it, but it's just one of those things that Star Trek piles in like section 31 where you're just like, yeah, I don't, that, I don't think this is necessary. I actually think section 31 is a very good analogy for that. And I will say section 31 was better portrayed than the time ships, but we left DS9 with so many questions about section 31 that uh, it didn't seem and. I don't know if Voyager is going to ex- go into Section 31. I don't know if Enterprise is going to, but it – oh. I, I So we're recording this on a webcam, and I can see Eric's expressions, and I'm not now even less looking forward to Enterprise. But that's a different story. Aside from all of those problems, aside <laughs> from the sort of like shaky structure that this episode is built on, I like it. It's yeah. really fun. I mean, I think the episode does go out of its way to, like, oh, Janeway gets a headache about time travel and, oh, temporal psychosis. And, like, a lot, of Which... the, a lot of those elements are silly, and I think it's the episode's way of almost back to the futuring it. You know, like, 
We have this is going to be a romp. Here's the rules we're setting up for this episode. Don't worry about anything you've ever learned about time travel in Star Trek. That doesn't really matter here. This is what's happening in this. These are the rules for this episode. And all right, seven of nine, go. And we see her saving the ship. We and yeah, because. Well, because once again, this is Jerry Ryan's episode, and yeah. she does a great job. I, I mean, I don't think that this can be said enough. She was a really good addition to the show. And yeah, sh- as an actress and as a character, she can anchor episodes and can anchor a lot of episodes and can lo- anchor a lot of very different episodes, too. I mean, that's the – they don't give her the same exact plot over and over again, uh, and – no, for I, I, sure, because I think that we have – I mean, you know, this is a criticism of Star Trek that many people have made, and I think that Voyager doesn't get enough credit for having a, a you know, a female character that yeah. um, they they don't put in these sexualized situations a lot of the time, and they give her a lot to do, and they give her very different things to do. I mean, she gets episodes like Someone to Watch Over Me. She gets episodes like The Raven. She gets yeah. episodes like this. You know, there's a lot of good stuff that she gets to do. I mean, she carried Dark Frontier, for instance. And while we had problems with Dark Frontier, her performance was great. And this, once again, is a good example of Jerry Ryan just being able to quietly anchor an episode extremely well. And, you know, I I think that there's not, you know, I don't want to overanalyze this episode too much because I don't want it to fall apart. I think that, that once you start to sort of like... Why did this happen? Why did that happen? You know, like it, it's it. I, I kind of want to stay away from that. I mean, I know that's our stock and trade, yeah. but like, I don't think it's really relevant for this episode. Uh, one of the things that I really appreciate about this episode is that it kind of talks about the the fundamental, um, I guess, the fundamental unknowingness of like what is going to happen in the future, and the fact of the matter is. Going back to the past, going back to the beginning when Captain Janeway first came onto Voyager, yeah, those scenes are just really fun, and it's it's a really good example of the show paying like paying attention to itself and also yeah. playing around with its own continuity. Um, I do wish that they had shown like the Doctor or something like that had died in the first episode of the show. Oh yeah, that's like the one thing I wish they had done. Um, but overall I like it and I have questions about the timing of it all, but on the whole, it, it, it's, it's done well. Yeah, it's, I mean, we even had the Kazon. I mean, the show did the show never really forgot about the Kazon, even though they're thousands of light years away now. And, you know, I like that, uh. Seven has the contempt for them uh, as she does because they were not a species worth assimilating. Again, as a fun episode with a with a, the show does not ask us. This, this is at a level of time travel that was similar to trials and tribulations, or trouble, more tribbles, more trials trouble, and tribulations, trials yeah. and tribulations, whatever. Um, and I like that level of it because it is just a way to hang on an adventure. And I mean, there isn't any the the. the the deepest moments, I would say, of this episode, number one, is when you have Seven of Nine, you know, imploring past Janeway to trust her and all of that. And again, another development in that relationship, a flipping of that relationship. Um, and 
this is another episode in which, yes, Janeway is our girl. We're seeing her. We are on her ship the entire time. But from the perspective of somebody outside of that, Janeway is kind of a monster. Here we have Braxton yeah. going insane about the fact that Janeway has caused so many temporal incursions that she must be stopped because she's so dangerous. But on the other hand, this is somebody who's caused three temporal incursions. That's probably bad. It's bad, but I mean, how many did Kirk make? How many did Picard I know. Make? It's just, you know, I mean, that once again, like, I don't want to go down this road because once you start, like, examining the text of this episode, it starts falling apart because they could but have I, done this for any of the, the any of, of the, course. any of the, the Star Trek shows, really. I mean, this is not something that is, uh, and they blame her for, like, the events of Timeless, and she didn't even have anything to do with that. I mean, that was all no. like Kim and Chakotay. So, and it is fair that. Uh, Bra- it is made very clear that Braxton has gone off the deep end at some point. He's gone from – I mean this is kind of – this is very similar to Drumhead in which, yes, Picard has made a couple of, ver- of violations of the Prime Directive and we know that and that's bad. But uh, the the Inquisitor in that episode goes, go, goes crazy with it and that's where the problem is. I think it's just Voyager is, especially this version of Voyager, this is something we have consistently said this season, Voyager is willing to criticize its captain in a way that past shows were not able to, to, to do. And even though we could have made as many charges against Picard or Kirk or uh, Cisco was the beginnings of, I think, uh, that graying, but... Yeah. Those shows were not prepared to make it very clear that from a certain perspective and a lot out on their own and making the best decision with complete incomplete information, there is going to be collateral damage. I mean, this is uh, the Ray Wise character in Fear and Hope, was it called? Uh, is Hope another open fear. fear, another example of that. Somebody who, from an outside perspective, Janeway is somebody who destroyed his world. Yes, he went a little too far in his revenge, but... Her actions did cause damage. Her actions in this in time do cause damage, according to Captain Braxton, for example. Yeah, I mean, whether or not we buy it is a different story. And again, Braxton's the bad guy in this episode that we won't forget that. Well, a version of Captain Braxton's the bad guy in this episode. So so I. I kind of have a problem with this. I, I mean, a, the 29th Century Federation apparently has laws about arresting people for gr- crimes that they are going to commit in the future, which... Yeah. Okay. Minority uh, Report was a whole movie about why that's bad. Yeah, I'm like, I don't know about that. Um, it doesn't really make any sense. I mean, I get to this point with this episode where I'm like, it doesn't really make any sense, and you just kind of have to go with it, right? Yeah. Like, Captain Braxton is fine in his present quote unquote, but at some point in the future, the, the issues that he had crop up in futures and being stuck on earth for 30 years, being rehabilitated, whatever that means and, and going back and then he's going to have temporal psychosis and become this crazy person essentially that's going to want to destroy Voyager because he sees Voyager as the key to all of his problems. Um, okay, sure. Uh, but, but it's just another way in which, the actions of Janeway are catching up with her, which yeah. I think is the more interesting way to look at this episode because Janeway did sort of 
it's not that she I I remember I, having this issue that, that we had with Future's End where Captain Braxton shows up in the first five minutes of the episode and it's just like, no, 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 just lie back and let me murder you because you're going to mess something up. And Captain Janeway's like, dude, I don't want to do that. Will you just explain this to me? And and that, to me, is the, the, the key tension here where the 29th century Starfleet, 29th century Federation yeah. is just like, nah, just trust us. Very... And, and 24th century Starfleet is very much the opposite of that. They're very like, no, we will not bother you if you don't want us to bother you. So it's a much... I... Well, it's a much more paternalistic view of the Federation. You could never possibly understand time, so let Daddy fix Daddy Braxton fix this. And I mean, there's this whole through line where Braxton keeps saying, "Listen, Janeway is dangerous. Do not trust her. Do not let her in." And Seven saying, "Listen, like I know this woman very well. We can work it out. She would be an asset." And as happens when she, when they do come into contact with uh, with each other, Seven of Nine is able to explain the situation to Janeway in a way that Janeway understands and will accept and is willing to help on, and that becomes a very, uh, as Seven says, it becomes a very good asset for her, and it's how they manage to solve the mission. I mean, this is, 24th century Starfleet believes that, yes, if we meet somebody, we can diplomacy our way through it, we can work it out, we can explain our situation. If we are all good-intentioned, we should be able to figure this out and figure out a way to work together on this, and I can understand this, and I can dig it, I can get it. And 29th is the one who's saying, no, we can never do that. Yeah, but I mean, like, well, there's there's a couple things there. I think that, that Part of what makes this so difficult is that in a lot of ways, because of the existence of the Temporal Prime Directive, I think that the future federal... I mean, we don't know what... Assumedly, in the 29th century, there are still regular starships flying around in other galaxies or something, exploring and just doing what they do. And the Prime Directive still exists, and they're still following that. But, But we are talking about a temporal Prime Directive, so it is the case that they are treating the past like they're treating non-warp civilization yeah and and so they don't want them to know what they're doing because they are it's the same as the prime directive like you could say well yeah. why didn't picard just tell them in talkins and who wa- who watches the watchers that he was from space like well because of the prime directive is that paternalistic i don't know um and the other part of it too of course is that just on a level of storytelling having this idea that you can't tell people in the past what is happening because it's going to violate the, the temporality of the situation or yeah. the paradox or something like that. It, it's just a way to heighten the tension of the episode, right? Like it's just a, it's a writerly device to keep information back from people yeah. so that there is some tension in the episode. Well, this is another theme that I, I, I see. For example, the Omega Directive is a perfect example of it, where Janeway has a problem and she thinks she can't tell anybody and she's going to do it on her own and all of that. And when she's able to trust her crew and they can figure it out and they're all adults and they're all professionals. And it's interesting to see the mirror of that, to see Seven of Nine, who is somebody that, again, at one point felt very distant from everybody, realizing that, no. Connecting to Janeway is the best way of getting through this, and she's somebody that can help me. And, I mean, they make it very clear at the end of the episode, well, all you did was go to the past, you didn't see your future, and 
I trust you can handle all of this. At this point, the secret of 29th century has time ships is out of the bag. And there's not that much that Janeway is going to be able to do with that information in real terms. I mean, even if she tells everybody 500 years from now, we're getting time ships. I mean, that's cool, but that doesn't really affect anybody right now. Um, And also Janeway wouldn't do that. No, that's that's the other thing. There is a degree to which, like, that's go back to that scene between Seven of Nine and Janeway uh, uh, right before Voyager's launch. And, and, you know, Seven of Nine is like, listen, we're going to know each other. I'm going to serve on your crew. You need, like, trust. I'm going to tell you what you always told me. Trust me. You know, that is part of this episode as well, that this is Seven of Nine learning the lessons that Janeway has taught her over the past, uh, well, two years at this point. Like... And this is her her graduation in a way. You know, she is yeah. doing this thing to protect her home at this point. And that's nice to see. Yeah, that is nice to see. Um, I also think that there is um, – I also think that there there's a nice playfulness to this episode that you see in some of the better time travel episodes. Uh, uh, you know, I love Janeway's line. All right, let's do this before I'm getting before my headache gets any worse at the yeah. very end of the episode. And I also like, you know, one of my favorite uh, uh, points in this episode is Seven saying, "Well, it looks like the, in some sense the Federation owes its existence to the Borg." You know, stuff like that. Um, it's just it it it's 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 a fun episode. Like, yeah, and, you know, leaving aside all of this other serious conversation, like it is just fun. Yeah, I mean, I love the cold open. This is, again, this season has been really crappy with the cold opens, except the ones that are good. I would say the wedding, the Jason Alexander episode had a good cold open, and this really do the work. I mean, it's really cool to see all of the past and what's going on, and then, holy shit, it's Seven of Nine on the ship in the beginning. And that's cute, and that in a way... And that, in a way, puts Seven on a more even keel with everybody because now she's gone through the events of the pilot, in a way. Yeah. Um, or oh, yeah, right that's before true. the pilot. Yeah. Yeah, she was not there on the ship in the beginning. Now she's seen it in the beginning, and that kind of seals her membership in the crew a little more symbolically. I just – the biggest question that I have about this episode is the ping pong tournament – uh-huh. Where the matchup is Balana and Harry versus Tom and Seven, and I don't know how that came about. Like, I can't. Uh, Balana, would she want Harry on her team? I mean, that would be. I would be terrified if I were Harry in that. And have I, you seen Harry Kim's arms? I'm sure that he's very good at ping pong. That's that. Uh, it's sure he's very. He spends a lot of lonely nights. Um, I, I, his arms are extremely <laughs> powerful. From masturbating several times a day. <laughs> and clarinet. Um, that takes some dexterity. He's got very good fingers. It's sad. He masturbates while playing the clarinet? Well, he masturbates with the clarinet, but that's a different story. And I don't think that that's, you know, appropriate for our family audience. Um, I could definitely buy that Bellana and Tom are com- competitive with each other. Like, that, that, that must be a very fun relationship to be in. <laughs> 
Now I'm just going down a road of thinking about what their sex life is like, and I really don't want to go there. So apparently, wasn't there an episode the other day that uh, the other week where they mention, uh, yes, everybody in the everybody on your deck can hear it when you're having sex. Like they apparently just have very mm-hmm. loud, violent Klingon sex. So yes, they have very athletic, violent sex, and that is pretty much what I thought. Although Tom Paris is like a pasty white guy, so I'm, yeah, I'm, but Balan is only half Klingon, so it it, it, it it's it's rough, true. but it's all right. Well, I think that we'll call it an episode. If you have any thoughts on these episodes, please leave a comment on the post for this episode of the podcast at truckaboutshow.com. You can check out our Patreon, as we said earlier, patreon.com slash truckaboutshow. It also supports our other podcast, Tuning In. We are still in the fifth season of The X-Files, so go to tuninginshow.com to check that out. And if you give us $5 a month or more, you can get access to all of our patron specials. I, I think there's something like 45? 30 of them now. Um, the one that we released in June in honor of Pride Month is a coming out episode looking at specifically the kids in the hall. Buddy Cole, Scott Thompson. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, we are there. Truck About Show is our username in all those places. And as always, please leave us an Apple Podcast review. Richard? It is the best way for new listeners to get to listen to our podcast. There you go. And if you leave us a review, we'll read it on air. You get your five (gasps) minutes of fame. All right. Next week, we have done it, Richard. Well, we will have done it in honor of Relativity, a time travel podcast. Yeah, Our future selves will have done it, but in a sense, it already has been done. And when our future selves do it, it will be a couple weeks before it's released and they hear it. So there is really a lot of time shenanigans. There's a lot of time travel going on. And I'm also learning different verb tenses in French. So I've just got time on the brain right now. All right. Next week, final two episodes of season five of Voyager. They are Warhead and Equinox.